0: It seems ages ago, the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Remember? Or maybe you'd rather forget. An invisible killer was on the loose and the whole world was scared. And we had only one tool, testing, to find out where that killer was and figure out where it would strike next. But there was one big problem. If tests were the key to tracking down the killer, Where were the tests? No one had enough. The problem, as we all know, was that the worldwide demand for chemicals and testing equipment skyrocketed when the pandemic broke. Companies ran out of everything, from reagents to nasal swabs and more. Norway, as a relatively small country, often found itself way back in line when it came to supplies. So what happened next might surprise you. I find it kind of
1: mind-boggling that we were able to do this to the scale that we were. We went from 1,000 tests in a small bottle to 10,000 tests fairly quickly. In a matter of weeks, we went from concept scale to production scale.
0: I'm Nancy Baselchuk and you're listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast from NTNU. The Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of how Norway's largest university, NTNU, tackled the shortage of coronavirus tests in a very unorthodox way. It's an unlikely story of how a bunch of lab geeks, some vanishingly small beads, and two emails saved Norway's bacon. So let's begin at the beginning. In this story that would be March 20th 2020
2: my uh, leader of department of clinical and molecular biology he got the request from Santu Last Hospital all the whole medical faculty got the request and the request was do you have any kits for RNA extraction and that was the simple question that's... I'm a professor in molecular biology or molecular medicine at NTNU and also at Oslo University Hospital and University of Oslo.
0: Norway's first coronavirus infection was detected on February 26th. Newspapers had already begun to warn of shortages of personal protective equipment and tests. On March 12th, the government essentially shut the country down. People were told to work from home whenever possible. And wherever you're listening from, you can probably fill in the rest. Everything ground to a halt. People were afraid to go to the grocery stores. No one got their hair cut. And yeah, toilet paper. In Trondheim, doctors at St. Olaf's Hospital began to feel the pinch almost immediately. St. Olaf's is one of the big regional hospitals in the country. So on March 20th, they broadcast the urgent cry for help that Magnar Björos told us about earlier.
2: When I saw that email, I thought immediately, of course, we have kits. But we have kits maybe for two, three, four hundred 400 samples. It's nothing, because we don't do large-scale RNA extraction. We do small-scale. And uh, so then I started to think there is no way we can provide them with anything that can support them in short run or long run.
0: One thing you need to know about Magnar is that he grew up on a farm. That's part of how he got interested in biology. And I was very
2: interested in life on the farm, uh, the animals and how uh, living life was, uh, what's behind it.
0: It's not hard to imagine that his background on the farm, where you need to know how to fix things and make do with what you have, contributed to what happened after Magnar got that first email.
2: When the request from Santu hospital came about reagents, because they were uh, lacking reagents to do the extraction test, I thought that we, we can try to make an in-house test And that's how it started. And uh, we thought that we do that now for the hospital for a few weeks uh, so we can help them out of the crisis.
0: At first, Bjoros and his colleagues made a test that used alcohol to extract the viral RNA. It worked, but it would be tough to implement at the scale needed. No, they needed something that would be fast and easy to use. Enter another email It turns out a researcher that Magnar worked with knew about this researcher over in chemical engineering, who was doing some interesting work with nanoparticles.
3: So we actually received a more general email from Magnar's department, addressed to the head of the group tower department. And then he forwarded the email to us because he had been knowing that I was working with such particles. And the journey started. That's. Shulalit Bandiopadhyay, and I am an associate professor at the Department of Chemical Engineering here at NTNU.
0: While Magnar grew up on a Norwegian farm, Sulalit grew up in India and came to NTNU to do his master's and then PhD in the Chemical Engineering Department. He did a shared postdoc at TU Delft and NTNU, working with tiny iron oxide particles coated with silica the particles were labeled with a little DNA tag. By dropping these little harmless particles into a river, for example, they could trace the flow of the water along its journey by sampling the water, plucking their little iron oxide particles up using a magnet and reading the little code. As it happened, they had already decided to try to attach RNA to the particles too. And guess what? The virus that causes COVID-19 is an RNA virus. Before we go any further, we need to know how the NTNU test works and why Sulalit's nanobeads, the one he used to study water flows, are important. The coronavirus test is basically
3: done now taking swabs from the patient, mostly from the nose or sometimes from the throat. Once this swab is taken, it's mixed with some chemicals, which Magner's group has uh, made. And once these uh, are exposed to the chemicals, the virus opens up. Then you get the viral genetic material, which in this case is RNA. And then we add our beads to the process.
0: Then you have to get the RNA from the virus out of the solution. And that's where the use of Sulalite beads really shines.
3: So what the beads do is that they bind this viral genetic material onto their surface and using a magnet we can then separate them out. Later on we use a different solvent, a different solution, where the beads then release this RNA back and then using some known technology called uh, PCR, Polymerous Chain Reaction, we can find out whether this is the viral RNA or not.
0: Those are the two places where the NTNU test cuts the need for chemicals. The first is if there's RNA from any virus, it's attracted to the beads, like bees to honey. No chemicals needed. The second is that they can use a magnet to take the RNA-coated nanobeads out of the solution. Again, no chemicals needed. The last part of the test that you heard Sulalit describe involves a machine called a PCR which is short for polymerase chain reaction, to read the genetic code of the RNA. In our case, they did this work down at St. Olaf's. The PCR results allow the researchers to compare the code of the RNA they get from the patient to the code for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. If they get a match, that means the patient has COVID-19. That also means the test can be used to detect the new variants of the virus that are circulating around the globe now.
3: So with the addition of the beads, what it does is that it's specific to the COVID-19 RNA virus, uh, as a result of which it gives us a very sensitive method of detection.
0: The fact that they can create a coating that is specific to different genetic material is important, And not just because it makes their beads a very sensitive way to detect the coronavirus. I'll talk more about this later. Okay, so back to late March. One day after the email goes out from St. Olavs, Magnar and Sueli connect. Magnar again.
2: We realized in one day that this is going to work. And then we started the discussions and then it just escalated.
0: And one week after St. Olav sent its plea for help, the hospital got its new tests. The tests were double-checked against the few remaining commercial tests the hospital had, and they worked. Not only that, but they were slightly more sensitive than the commercial tests. Once it was clear that the NTNU tests worked, the Norwegian authorities got interested. Maybe NTNU could make enough tests for the whole country? Say, 5 million? Because yes, that's what the authorities asked the university to deliver. 5.1 million tests. It's one thing to make a small-scale test. Making enough tests to really bail out Norway? Well, that's a whole nother process. Sulalit again.
3: And the initial days were very hard, uh, to be honest. We were working 24-7. Uh, the first two and a half weeks when we were trying to do tests more at a small-scale level. And then when we started scaling up, we got in more people into the team. So that was a bit more easy, let's say. Initially, we produced batches that were capable of producing kits for 1,000 tests. And then within a week, we were producing in the range of 10,000, 20,000 and grew.
0: Right from the beginning, there was a core team, of people like. My name is Vega Ruttesen, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Chemical Engineering. It was Vegar we heard at the top of the podcast, marveling at how fast the whole process went. His role was to inspect the nanoparticles after they had been made using a powerful microscope. Characterizing the product to uh, make sure that we got what we wanted to get and that
1: the product quality was uh, adequate for use.
0: Then there
1: was.
3: Anwench Sh- Sharma. And I am a Ph.D. candidate at the Department of Material Sciences and Engineering at NTNU.
0: Anuvanch had been working with Sulalit on the DNA-labeled nanoparticles that they were using to study water flows, but joined the team to make the nanoparticles for the COVID-19 test.
3: So, so Salath and I, we were synthesizing the particles, the iron oxide particles, and coating them with silica.
0: At the peak of production, roughly 30 people were working in three independent groups. They had to make sure if someone caught COVID-19 in one group, the other groups could still keep producing tests. The pressure was intense. Norway needed tests. No one wanted to let the country down.
1: So if one production line was infected, uh, we, we could take that out of production and still maintain a certain volume that we could deliver to the, to the country and to the world.
0: To be able to make all these tests, the researchers essentially set up a factory at the university. It wasn't like any factory that you might imagine. It was a bunch of lab workers in the laboratory wearing white coats and goggles in front of the lab benches fitted with fume hoods. Those are like big boxes with powerful fans in them to filter and vent potentially harmful gases or vapors from their work. I have tons of recordings from the labs at this time, but most of it's kind of boring. When Sulalit walked me down the line of fume hoods to describe the production, it really didn't look like a massive factory churning out hundreds of thousands of nanobeads for the tests. In fact, if you've ever taken a chemistry class, that's kind of what it looked like. The only really cool sound I got was the sound of this machine from the hospital, where they did the actual diagnostic part of the test, exploding the virus and then analyzing the genetic material inside. Magnar is explaining to me what the machine is doing. You'll hear him say lysis buffer a bunch of times. That's the solution that pops open the viruses so they release their RNA.
2: Yeah, so you see the magnet? We use some combs that are outside the magnets. And now it actually, the magnet starts to go up and down in the solution with the patient sample and lysis buffer. So it's mixing uh, the patient sample and the lysis buffer. So it will be a homogeneous uh, solution. And so what's happening now is that the lysis buffer is breaking up the virus and releasing the RNA into the solution. After that, we will actually turn on the magnet So the magnet uh, will attract the
0: RNA. And they got really good at it. Really good at it. And even though the work was exhausting, the feeling that what they were doing was bailing Norway out, helping the country track the virus, that was a very powerful motivator. Sulalit again.
3: It feels really great to have helped society uh, very directly. What what amazes us, the whole team, is that we were looking at uh, producing some beads in a small lab scale, but within two and a half weeks we were already testing live samples from patients and the system was working very robustly. So that's uh, what we are very proud of in this whole
0: project. By the autumn of 2020, when I sat down with Magnar he and the other lab scientists were contemplating their next steps. Their laboratories had the capacity to make 1.2 million test kits per week.
2: The first phase was to uh, initiate production and to deliver to hospitals or to the health authorities in Norway. And uh, the second step was in a way to to look at could we upscale this production so we can deliver uh, abroad because, as you know, there is also a huge uh, shortage of uh, reagents uh, abroad.
0: Pretty much every university has a technology transfer office to help researchers with ideas that have commercial potential. This was clearly unnatural.
4: I'm Tony Estegda, I'm a business developer at NTNU Technology Transfer.
0: Tonya Stigadal was involved with Magnar and Sulalit and the rest of the team in seeing if they could supply the tests internationally. It took a bit to figure out the logistics, but by the end of September last year, a million NTNU tests were shipped to Denmark and India. Other countries and customers would soon follow. The success of the test raised an important question for the researchers and the folks at Technology Transfer. Should they just go back to life as usual after the pandemic was over? Or should they try something different? Tony Stiegeldahl again.
4: It was a special situation, and they, they were making the solutions for the hospitals, and we had that in place uh, before the summer, and then we were selling out of the university in, in the fall. But it's obviously not sustainable for a university to be a kind of manufacturer and, and selling this in the, in the market. So uh, we have now, we're now in the process of establishing a company that will continue to, to bring this to, to customers in, uh, nationally and internationally.
0: The company, which will be called LIBE, from the first two letters of Lysis, remember Magnar talking about that?
2: Lysis Buffer.
0: And B B E B-E, from Beads. But the company won't just deliver coronavirus tests. Remember early on when Sulalit was talking about how the coating on the beads could be tailored to attract different kinds of genetic material? The new company will expand on that.
4: What's good about this is that this technology can be utilized in in many ways. And with minor adjustments, it can be used also for other respiratory uh, diagnostics like the normal flu and the... and other respiratory viruses. And then we also know that in the diagnostics, in the, in the clinic, there are many, many needs and they do a lot of testing every day. So what we also then need is to come up with solutions that, that they need also for other microbes, uh, bacteria, viruses, and uh, and so on. Everyone
0: was impressed with the speed of how people have responded. And of course, not just in Norway. Who would have guessed that there would be working vaccines roughly a year after the pandemic broke? But when I asked people what NTNU researchers learned from the COVID-19 pandemic, two things really stood out. One was the value of basic research, meaning research that doesn't necessarily have a real-life application, but that just involves the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake. are Oltesen.
1: Basic research is vital, and I, I do hope that society as a whole will not only continue to fund it, but increase funding to basic research. At the same time, applied research is what we used here to, to overcome this great problem. Now, it wouldn't have been possible without a lot of basic research first. And I sincerely doubt that the basic researchers who, who were behind the, the chemistry we used the Physics we used could possibly have known how it would be used, how their knowledge would contribute to combating the pandemic in 2021 and 2020. Whenever a need arises uh, on a national or global scale, even like this, then it is very important to have the puzzle pieces ready to assemble the solution to the problem that we may face. And we can't possibly assemble a puzzle without the puzzle pieces, and the puzzle pieces. That's basic research.
0: The other was that it drove home the fact that an idea can become a reality in a hurry, especially if you have the adrenaline from a pandemic driving you forward. Sulalit again.
3: What we all uh, keep on saying that we have excellent ideas, but we don't uh, transform them into actions. Uh, in many cases, in academics. But this was, this is what I'm going to look back, that this was a start for me to think that it's also possible in academics. It doesn't take such a long time.
0: I'm Nancy Baselchuk and you've been listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast from NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. You'll find more information about the NTNU test on our show notes page. If you've enjoyed today's show, we hope you'll let your friends know and leave a rating on your podcast app. Editorial Help and Sound Design by Historia Brucke. Thanks for listening.